I want to preach this morning about leadership. I will review different leadership styles with the overall view that various situations call upon leaders to choose which style is best. I want to reflect specifically about which style is best in the congregational context, how that's changed over the years, and some of the serious challenges facing your congregation in the months ahead. And finally, I want to encourage all of you who are members to begin thinking about what kind of leader you are looking for in your next minister, just as you think about what kind of leadership skills in yourself you can most fully develop here. When contemplating leadership, most people begin with uh, the image of a field general, George Patton, for instance. Authoritarian, daring, and charismatic, Patton could be tough on his soldiers, but mostly they loved him. Captain John Miller, the fictional hero in Steven Spielberg's award-winning movie Saving Private Ryan, is such a leader. Taciturn, decisive, and unflinching, the men under his command were devoted to him. The military historian Victor Davis Hanson considers leaders of this style the principal reason our country prevailed in the Second World War. However, the U.S. Army Handbook lists three distinct kinds of leadership, one of which, the style I've been describing, they connote as authoritarian and autocratic. Also listed, the participative or democratic leadership style in which input from subordinates is sought and used, and a third style, delegative or free-reign leadership wherein the leader delegates to subalterns various tasks with instructions to figure out what needs doing and see that it gets done. The Army Handbook points out that different situations call for distinctive styles. The best leaders, and that includes Air Force General Jacqueline Van Oost and Army Lieutenant General Laurel Richardson, both uh, nominated by President Biden last Monday to become four-star generals. Well, the best, the Army Handbook points out that uh, the best leaders can practice all three of these styles, the participative, the delegative, and when necessary, the autocratic. Abraham Lincoln is a good example. I recently read Doris Kern Goodwin's bestseller, Team of Rivals, rivals about Lincoln's Civil War cabinet. As a true war president, Lincoln recognized his constitutional duty to make executive decisions. He worked closely with the Congress, studied military strategy, and met with his officers in the field. His reputation as a hayseed preceded him. However, the times were so perilous that he persuaded key rivals to join his cabinet, representing competing factions and all of them certain of their greater capacity. It was some time before each of them in turn came to appreciate the president's brilliance and acumen. Issuing the Emancipation Proclamation proclamation is a perfect illustration. In late 1862, Lincoln told his cabinet 
that fighting the war the way they were doing it was not working. New initiatives to weaken the rebellion must be considered, including abolition, authoritarian. He then asked for their ideas and input on the details and timing, participative. Once these were compiled, sorted through, and synthesized, Lincoln issued the Hallmark Decree. Its implementation was entrusted to others, delegative. Congregational leadership, while different from political leadership, requires some of the same skills particularly the ability to vary one's style to fit the situation. In recent decades, the influence of women in the ministry has reordered many ministerial norms within Unitarian Universalism. The old mid-century model, all but exclusively male, is well described by John Updike in one of his last stories published in the New Yorker magazine. Updike's father-in-law was Leslie Pennington, the longtime Unitarian minister in St. Louis, who retired to a farm in Vermont. The New Yorker story was clearly autobiographical. His parish, writes Updike, included university existentialists, some hip philosophy buffed up, buffed up his uh, old-fashioned transcendentalist sermons, which he delivered with a beautiful voice tentatively. For most of these people, the ministry was a preaching station. Ministers were scholars in residence, a little in, and little in the way of pastoral care, aside from the occasional funeral, was expected. Peter Rabel at University Unitarian and Philip Hewitt at the Vancouver, British Columbia Beat uh, Church from the mid-50s well into the 90s both exemplified that archetype. By the early 60s, the model had morphed. Instead of scholars, Unitarian Universalists were more often activists in residence who traveled the world, met interesting people, and invited congregants to share their experiences vicariously. So the minister in the church I grew up in, Bob Killam, was his name. He went to Gabon in Africa, Central Africa, and visited Albert Schweitzer, he went to Southeast Asia and visited the Tom Dooley, and then reported on it to us as part of his kind of sermons. But as the 60s progressed, less of the celebrity um, activist uh, more and more, uh, prevailed, because more and more UU ministers, and over the decades, still more, became involved in civil disobedience. Despite the fact that universalists were the first denomination to ordain women during the Civil War, and had by the late 19th century many women ministers, the tide turned following the First World War. It was not until the late 50s that Star King Seminary in Berkeley admitted their first female seminarian, Violet Kokendorfer, a member of the Santa Fe Fellowship that I later served. She went on to serve several congregations, setting a trend that has grown ever since. By the time I arrived in Berkeley, 15 years after Violet led the way, close to a third of those preparing for the liberal ministry were women. By the time I left in 83, more than half were women. And today, 
women account for well over two-thirds. I think it's closer to three-quarters of the ministers in the field. And I have ministerial colleagues who are trans and others who identify as non-binary. The overall effect of all this has been the adoption of a more collaborative, relationship-oriented model of parish ministry. We are asked and expected to be more facilitator than director, more pastoral than political, although they still want you to do everything. We are still expected to preach and to be able to preach well and to do original work. But we are asked to be personally engaged with our members and the surrounding community. Moreover, women ministers have helped to change the tone in Unitarian Universalism. No longer are most of our churches debating societies. There is a more interactive, encouraging atmosphere and less intellectual arrogance, or so it seems to me. Liturgically, our worship services have more poetry and texture, as exemplified by the inclusion of um, joys and sorrows, chalice lighting, and special annual services like the flower and water communions. The aloof authoritarian model described by John Updike has virtually disappeared with a de-emphasis on intellectual superiority or pretensions to that effect has come a corresponding emphasis on strengthening relationships and greater collaboration. The servant model has replaced the field general model of leadership. Robert Greenleaf worked for AT&T for 40 years researching management, development, and education. Suspecting that the power-centered authoritarian leadership model so prominent in our country's institutions was not working, Greenleaf took an early retirement to establish the Center for Applied Ethics. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, he developed the idea of servant leadership. Robert Greenleaf held that servant leaders care first about serving the needs of their followers and only secondarily about leading. The best test, the most difficult to administer, he wrote, is this. Do those served grow as persons? Do they, while being served, become healthier, wiser, more autonomous, more likely themselves to become servants? Implementing the servant leadership model in American institutions has met resistance, not only from authoritarian-type leaders, but also from many followers who desire a paradigm they are familiar with, coercive power over rather than the relational power based on mutual agreements that servant leadership asks for. Moreover, business institutions legally serve their stockholders commercial interests, period. Growing a person to grow as persons almost seems laughable in such calculus. Churches, on the other hand, are special institutions with a more wholesome mission. In church, ideas of becoming healthier, wiser, freer, more autonomous are, and always have been, valued 
And this is especially so in our Unitarian and Universalist churches. Robert Greenleaf's ideas about servant leadership gelled after he read Journey to the East by Herman Hesse. In my 20s, I read virtually everything Herman Hesse had written, and I loved all of it. Journey to the East is short and accessible. In it, the narrator tells the story of being on a mythical journey with a bunch of other people. He's especially impressed with Leo, who accompanies the party as one of the servants doing menial chores, but who also sustains them with his spirit and singing. All goes well until Leo suddenly disappears. Before long, the party disbands. After years of wandering, the narrator meets Leo again only to discover that the simple fellow he had first known is actually the leader and guiding spirit of the order that had sponsored the whole journey. Another of my favorite books, The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson, has the same or a similar theme. Matheson was invited to accompany wildlife biologist George Shaler on a deep on a trip deep into the Himalayan mountains. Schaller's aim was to study the rutting behavior of Himalayan blue sheep, or, and maybe to see the rare snow leopard. Matheson's journey is more of a pilgrimage. He visits with hermit saints and bodhisattvas, but in the end, he comes to recognize the Buddha in their Sherpa guides, servants, who the socialite Matheson hardly mentions because he hardly notices them in the book's early chapters. As your developmental minister, let me make one thing clear. I am committed to the idea of servant leadership. Like everything else, it must be balanced by other models from time to time as circumstances dictate. However, as an overall paradigm, I support it, and I try to follow its vision of collaborative endeavor for the benefit of those I am honored to serve. One of my models for this kind of leadership has been the Reverend Jackie Lewis of the Multicultural, Multiracial, Middle Collegiate Church in Greenwich Village, New York. I've attended services there and attended a three-day workshop she led sponsored by the UU Ministers Association at the Asilomar Conference Center in Monterey. As a student of human development, Jackie Lewis prefers to think of leadership in narrative terms. We are a product of the stories told us, about us, for us. Stories like ethnicity or natural origin or gender or sexual orientation or religion, says Reverend Jackie Lewis. Our congregations are the same, developed by virtue of the narratives we include and incorporate. Recruit people and their stories into your heart and think of them as yourself. Build a relationship, says Jackie, with someone who opens your heart and grows your empathy that puts their story inside your story. As we do this collectively and cooperatively, the church becomes a truly transformational, beloved community. I know one thing wrote the Nobel Peace Prize winner and Unitarian, Albert Schweitzer, shortly before his death in 1965. I know one thing. Those of you who have not learned how to serve, 
will not find happiness. In his award-winning book, The Company of Strangers, the Quaker Parker Palmer praises the transformational power that covenantal faith traditions such as our own can provide when linked to the idea of service. And service is its prayer, as it says in our church covenant. To be in covenant is not to receive power and privilege and the right to domineer over others, writes Parker Palmer. Instead, covenant means acceptance of weighty obligations to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. It is the image of servanthood, he concludes, which keeps authentic faith from seeking political dominance. Leadership theory, of course, is one thing. Actual leadership is something else, especially since we all know that leading Unitarians is like herding cats. Priding ourselves on autonomy and freedom of conscience, as most UUs do, it takes an unusual amount of encouragement, cheerleading, individual cajoling to get enough people on board so that consensus is willingly embraced and that making of collective decisions can become possible. In such situations, the servant leader focuses on getting everyone to understand that the mission of the church is service to the children and youth, as Amanda repeatedly reminds us and challenges us to, to, to do with joy, and service to the wider community in greater Bellevue and Washington State across the world and to one another in times of need and stress as the pandemic has been for everyone here as well as our neighbors. East Shore Unitarian Church. We have all been in kind of a funk because of COVID. The whole world has. The whole country surely has. But soon things will start to open and start to percolate again in our lives, in our inner lives, and in our social life. We must be ready to meet the clarion call. Our church's mission is service to the children and youth that we have here, to our spiritual siblings in the wider community and across the land, and to one another. Let us embrace this challenge with love and joy. May it be so. May it be enthusiastically so. Amen. Blessed be. Shalom. Salam. And namaste. Namaste.